another episode of Inside the Recording Studio, and I am Jody Whitesides, and with me as always is Mr. Chris Hellstrom. How are you today, Chris? I'm doing good, Jody. I'm Yeehaw. doing good. How about yourself? I'm doing all right. Not good. Gonna, not going to complain. No, we've had a long discussion and gotten that out of the way already before we started <laughs> taping here, so let's leave it at that. That's yes. not meant for public consumption, I guess. <laughs> no, but I am starting to get back to a happy place because I did, as I mentioned to you earlier, start creating guitar patches. Instead of guitar yeah. channel strips, I've started going a little bit more off the deep end and creating these elaborate guitar patches and spending several hours at a time doing so and just putting a smile back on my face. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I concur. I've done that as well sometimes. Not recently, but when you do that, it just kind of, yeah, kind of makes you remember what made you fall in love with the instrument initially, I guess, and the playing. And just for no other reason than just playing for the joy of it. Right? Yes. So that's cool. But we're not talking guitar today. No. We're talking mixing and punchy mixes yes. and how Smack to get me in them. in the face we're, mix. Yeah. So I guess first thing we'll cover, like, well, what constitutes a punchy mix to you? One that hits me in the chest and the face and the groin all at the same time. Yeah. How's that big <laughs> no. word of punch? Yeah, yeah, the punch. It can be a couple of different things, actually, to my mind. Yeah, but because it is a little bit subjective, isn't it? It is subjective, but at the same time, mixes can sound dark yet still be punchy. Mixes can sound really bright and still be punchy. It's how the mix comes across and liken it to is a word that I would associate with guitar playing. It's called onch. Yeah. And I think you might know, but to describe what onch is, is that moment when a pick nails the string and you're playing at a very loud volume. And punchy does not mean that you need to be at a loud volume, but in a mix in terms of music, it's more of a, how does it come across the speakers and literally hit me in terms of a soul feel, not so much as a volume feel? Yeah. A word that comes to mind to me is uh, impact. Yeah. Something that has impact that it's not a steady stream of volume type of thing. So that leads kind of into this where I think dynamics is a really, really important part of this. But it is that something that just kind of hits you over the head and you feel that it has that, it has that punch, right? <laughs> Again, it's like punchy mix. It, it's really the best way to kind of describe it. But it's something that I think that has like an impact. Like you said, it kind of kicks you in the chest or gets you a, a boot up the backside, right? It, it adds something and it has an effect on you. Mm -hmm. So is that always desirable though? Should we all strive to get, you know, punchy mixes on everything that we do? Mm, no, there's some songs that don't need that. Yeah, I think it depends on what kind of track we're doing, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, obviously very, very style dependent here. It's like we say, content dependent. So uh, cheers. cheers. I'll have a little bit of coffee here. <laughs> Well, the first thing that would probably fall under, how do we get to a punchy mix, right? Even before we do that, let me just kind of take one step back and say, is it always desirable? Now, I'm thinking, what kind of track are you writing? Is it a classical guitar piece? Is it an ambient mix that you're going to hear at a yoga studio? Then 
a punch he makes is probably not right up there in priority. However, right? so, with classical guitar, I could think of classical guitar pieces that could use a bit of punch. Do they all need that? No. I do agree with you on the yoga studio thing, though. That's one of those things where it's like you really don't need a punchy mix in a yoga right. studio. Right. But if you have something that wants to have like a little bit of an impact over, let's say, a pop track or a heavy guitar-driven rock track or even like a, a country track, a modern country track, something. I well, think the ultimate and punchy would probably come down to EDM and dance. That too, yeah. I mean, if you listen to that low end and stuff, it, it's if it isn't punchy there, the track's probably falling apart, right? Yes. So, okay, so how do we get there? What, what's your first thing that you would uh, listen for and, and kind of consider? The arrangement. Of the track. The arrangement yeah. of the track, the instruments that you're using and how they're working together. And I know from personal experience early on, I didn't do a very good job with arranging Oh, I always did. It was always brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> well, la di da. No, no, I agree. I mean, it, but explore there a little bit, and then I'll tell you my side of it as well. When I say that I wasn't very good at it, my initial thing had a lot to do with reading about other musicians and instruments and how they got to a point of where they recorded something. If it was an album that I listened to that I really felt strongly about, and one of the guitar players that I felt strongly about, especially with his sound, was Zach Wild. Sure. The guy was a masterful guy of layering guitars. But I took that to mean that you play the exact same thing with the exact same instrument and the same amp and the same microphone and everything else all at the same time. Mm. And you track it like four times because he was known for quadruple tracking a lot of stuff. Reality is that's not how it was done. <laughs> and I learned that fairly quickly. But I did spend some time doing it that way and realizing, whoops, that ain't right. The temptation of always wanting to add more mm -hmm. is one that is, well, for want of a better word, very tempting. Sure. Right? We feel like, oh, I need more impact, so let's keep adding stuff. Let's keep adding stuff. It still doesn't have the impact that I want. Let's add stuff. Let's add stuff. Well, and, but it's how you add the stuff that becomes yeah, the in, impact. And when it came to Zach Wilde, as the reference point that I'm going to give here, it had plenty to do with the fact that, yes, he was playing the same sort of rhythm or whatever it was that he was quadruple tracking. However, it was done with different guitars, going through different amps, played somewhere differently on the neck. So right. you're layering the sample and the sound, so to speak, of what he's playing He's that good of a player where he's playing it in different spots on the neck. He wasn't just playing the same thing with the same instrument, same amp, same mic. Everything was different about each take as it was done. When you combine things like that, becomes punchier or bigger in that regard. Yeah, Would you subtle agree? differences. Yeah. Well, my point that I wanted to make there is from my experience, when we're lacking punch, like I said, the – Temptation is to keep adding more stuff, mm -hmm. adding more things, where in reality to me, it's often better to sort of scale back what it is that you're doing and focus on a few elements because it it's very easy to like, okay, well, we got a guitar part here and it's not hitting as much as I want. Okay, let, let's add another synth patch <laughs> and let's add another one here and another one here. And it becomes like it's just a whole lot of nothing. 
It's mm-hmm. like th- there is no no dynamics or anything going on. So I find that finding in the arrangement what is it that is really important, what is it that is m- meant to drive this section of the song or this riff or whatever it is, and make that the focal point, and kind of clear away the clutter, if you will, the musical clutter, and decide what it is that's important here. A phrase that I like to use. And I can't remember where I stole it from because I stole it from somewhere. But it's a mix. It, I know, but it's so good that it, it deserved stealing. <laughs> is that a mix is not a democracy. Not everything gets equal say in the mix. Right? Something has to sort of take charge there. So coming from that mindset has helped me anyway in mm-hmm. those cases where it's like, oh man, I can get much more impact with just a few things. Imagine like an ACDC record, right? It's not layered like at all. No. Right? It just and it has massive impact. And but those guys are also masterful at getting that onch out of yeah, the guitar it, sound. Right. You know, Malcolm's right hand there and just kind of hitting away on those like barely distorted guitarist type of things. So mm-hmm. uh, sometimes less has a bigger impact. So th- that's one of the things that I consider when uh, you're trying to create punch in a mix where is everything that is there really important? And does it add something to it or do we need to? declutter it type of thing. Right. Uh, so that's where I start. But what about the next one? What, what would you think would be the next order of the day here type of thing? Dynamics. Yeah. Dynamics. Yeah. Definitely yeah. dynamics. Yeah. It kind of goes hand in hand with what we talked about there. If, if everything is just playing at the same level. And this is something that I noticed during sort of like the height of the loudness wars, mm-hmm. right, when albums were coming out. There was like, there's no dynamics. And the first thing that, that happens is that one the song kicks in, it might hit you in the chest, but then nothing happens. So you have no sort of- It doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. It doesn't so it elevate, just gets fatiguing. it doesn't decelerate. Yeah. So dynamics, having those loud elements and you know softer elements, even if it's just different levels in the mix, it doesn't mean that you can't have like a Rammstein record where it just it can be punchy as all hell in the chorus, right? But if the whole track is like that, you you kind of lose that definition a little bit in my mind, anyway. So the it dynamics does matter. Are, dynamics yeah. are a big deal, and it is easier to get dynamics with mic'd up instruments than it is to get them with virtual instruments. And the reason why I say that is is oftentimes that they're gonna be a little bit lazy with the number of samples that they're going to use. So you don't have as much variance in the actual sound with a virtual instrument. Now, is that always true? hundred percent? No, it's not. However, it is much easier to play off of a microphone, get away from it, pull your dynamics back and you can get real close and you can be right in there. And it's, I'm, I'm not being overly dynamic, but the change in where that microphone setup is, also changes the concept of how the dynamics work on the example I just gave is my voice. But it's the same concept when you're recording acoustic guitar, electric guitars, bass, drums, keyboards, what have you. Yeah, I would agree up to a point when you're talking about virtual instruments and things. Well, that's why I said it's not 100%. Right. No, but I would say like 15 years ago, yeah. Yeah. I, I would definitely agree that that was probably more true across the board. But with so many velocity levels and things and samples that are in there, that let's say, for example, like a drum library like Superior Drummer, from the softest hit 
to the loudest hit. There is a ridiculous amount of samples there, right? Yeah, but that's so, the it, superior way. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And that's why you pay for that. But the same kind of goes for, you know, where there, there's orchestral libraries and things as well. So it, then I think it becomes a little bit more how we're thinking about how we're performing with them or how we're programming them depending on how we input them. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't think it-, it It's getting better. It, it's I just say, not 100%. Uh, yeah, but at the same time also, let, let's, uh, I'm going to give you a counterpoint here on your microphone technique here as well. <laughs> <laughs> because we can't agree all the time, damn it. No. Um, is that we have to be a little bit careful. Let's say that we have that vocal performance that we're going to have. Mm -hmm. And depending on what is going on in the line, right, that we're singing, do we need it to be really, really intimate? Is it somebody that's just screaming into the mic? If something is supposed to be sort of really aggressive and we're playing too much with the dynamics of, now I'm talking about stepping away from the microphone or up to the microphone, I think you run the danger of just having an uneven performance. So, but I'm thinking from like, let's say from a verse standpoint or from a chorus standpoint, having those little inflections in there, I'm definitely with you, but we want to mm -hmm. be a little bit careful with how we do that, not to overdo that because then it just sounds like a sloppy performance. Sure. Again, depending on what kind of track we're doing. But, I can agree with that statement. I wasn't really trying to refer to the performance aspect of it. I was referring to the dynamic aspect of it. Gotcha. Okay. Well, you know what you said, so. I do, and now it's permanently in history, so. Yeah. So, What's up yeah. next? What else do we think about here when it comes to punchy mixes? EQ, frequencies. Again, when we were talking about initially there with the arrangement, it comes into hand, right? But the EQ part of it becomes really important as well, because if every frequency is just stuffed full with musical information, it's harder to get that impact. We kind of have to, primarily I would say the low end is very important for this. It's not like the rest of it is neither, but but the low end can easily get cluttered and it's hard to create that dynamic impact that we're looking for, that punch, as we say. Mm -hmm. So paying attention to Primarily, you know, bass guitar or bass synth, whatever we're doing, and perhaps a kick from a kick drum is important to pay attention to that relationship in order to get that massive impact. I sure. Think. Because, yeah. Well, there's so, other things to be considered about, too, depending on the genre and the instrumentation going on. Something that comes to mind is guys that are playing seven, eight, nine string guitars. Yeah. that go way down towards the base end of things. The other thing that you have to consider too is piano can get very, very low. Yep. Depending on what keys you're playing. That in regards to the low end, yes, it can become cluttered and you want to think about what's more important as the section goes on. And you already kind of covered that with the arrangement portion of things. And that is very true. You have to consider what is the important element going on in this particular frequency range at this point in time. And EQ can help with that. So you can EQ a piano to do something slightly different in terms of how much low end it's going to give off. Same with the bass, same with a nine string guitar or a cajon, depending on what your percussive element is in there as well. And there's a plethora of other instruments that you could be working with. And you want to think about what am I doing with this instrument 
in this frequency range right now. Yeah. So EQ plays an important part of that. Absolutely. And putting a uh, premium on that frequency range and thinking about, well, what is the most important part here? And I think when we're, you know, you're talking about eight-string guitars, that type of thing, you know, predominantly used in, in sort of like modern metal, that kind of thing, a little bit more aggressive stuff. But then you'd hear also that if you're doing that, that's going to be the important part. So the bass and the actual guitar will live in a relatively similar range there. Mm-hmm. But that means that the kick might have to come up a little bit. So that's why you get a lot of times in in that type of music, you get these what we call like typewriter kicks, right? Where it's all, you <laughs> just hear the beater kind of thing. Where, where just to still have the impact of the guitars there. And the opposite is probably true if you have, let's say that you're doing more of an R&B track, right? Where mm-hmm. presumably the bass and the kick drum is going to carry the low end. So if you have that piano section on there, let's say that you have, you know, a live piano or sample piano, whatever, perhaps thinking about transposing that piano part, if it's that low in that range, maybe moving that up an octave to Mm -hmm. make that audible as opposed to just kind of keeping everything in that same range. Now, of course, this this requires that you're part of the production and the recording of the actual song, right? Right. Another thing to think about is also, especially with drums, there are times when you think you're hearing a certain kind of drum, but you're not. Mm -hmm. And it could be a snare drum. But maybe that snare drum is not actually a snare drum. It might be a cardboard box. (laughs) This is true. Yeah. (laughs) Because the cardboard box ends up giving a punchier vibe than an actual snare, depending on the type of song that's going on. So it is, you have to be a little creative sometimes. And that goes back to the concept of the arrangement and the EQ frequency of whatever it is that you're playing. And that's just an example of being, it almost falls under abnormal miking type shit from last week's episode in that I'm going to mic up a cardboard box as my snare drum instead of a snare drum. Right. Because that's going to give me that thuddier thump that I'm not going to get from my snare, so to speak. And that's just one of those weird things. And you're bringing up metal, I'll bring up 70s power pop in that I just heard the breakdown of a famous song called Band on the Run. And you listen to the drums in that, and they have a different type of thuddy hit. And I'm not saying that Paul McCartney ended up playing a cardboard box as his snare on that kit, but (laughs) I am saying that it has a very different character to what modern metal would have, but those drums in there are very, very punchy with the way they sound. Yeah, content dependent, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I just wanted to, to throw in there as well. Sometimes, if we're really, really unlucky, our snare drum ends up sounding like a cardboard box if we're not processing <laughs> yeah, it. Right. So, but what you would think would be a cardboard box anyway. Yeah, when we're striving to have it nice and big and fat. So, yeah. And with that, let's take a word from our sponsors. And we're back, and we're going to move into our next item on how to get a punchier mix. It's our next phase, so to speak. We're going to talk about phasing. I like what you did there. Very clever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is something that we obviously should think about during the recording stage, but during mixing, we can adjust for this as well. And I'm thinking most of the time, I'm thinking low end here, Mm -hmm. but same principle goes. But phase, getting the phase right between the kick and and bass, that type of thing. And if you have the entirety of the kit, right, you want to make sure different 
microphones are in phase with each other here because that will kill your low end and make it sound possibly really hollow in my experience if you don't get that right because they're fighting each other. Or super tubby. Yeah. Most of the time it's not a pleasant sound, right? Or an appropriate sound. Could it work in certain cases? Yeah, sure it can. But uh, And there's plenty of famous records where you can actually hear phasing issues. It's not like it's going to kill you, but in this day and age, why be lazy? And of course, this can go back more to the recording engineer portion of it, especially when it comes to recording live drums. When you do have your XY miking or you're trying to mic stereo drums in that regard, you can sometimes hear the cymbals, what they would call cymbal wash, mm-hmm. where it sounds kind of weird in the stereo spectrum. And that's because the phasing between the mics and where the cymbals are set isn't necessarily a good spot. Yeah. <laughs> and that's something I've noticed also with when we're talking drums here, that it's not unusual. It's not unusual. There oh, you sorry. go. Uh, go I'll Tom. show myself out. <laughs> yeah. That we add samples to layer onto kick and snare or whatever drum Yes, but you don't necessarily it. layer on cymbal samples. No, no, no. But I was going to say when you do layering – Make sure that you check phase there as well, because mm-hmm. I've noticed that when you layer a certain kick, it don't count on it being in phase with what you have. You know, so it's worth checking there as well. So we can get into trouble there again with if we keep oh my my kick is not punchy enough, I keep layering and layering kick samples onto it, and you might be making the problem worse. Exactly. So it's a quick check, right? You just flip the phase on whatever plugin you have or just Or go in and edit the samples and make sure they're starting in the same direction. (laughs) Yeah. So all those little things, and that will save you a lot of headache because I would venture to say that generally the less sample layering you have to do, the better off you are, I would think. I would agree with that statement. Yeah. Phase, really important. Right. And then here's a word that I like, and I like these plugins saturation, <laughs> adding saturation, gentle saturation to your signal can do wonders. Would you agree or not? Yes. And I'll just say, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I recently, well, within the last year or so, I think, I picked up Decapitator mm. uh, from Sound Toys. Yes. And how big of an impact that can have by just using gentle amounts of saturation and it can really, really bring parts out. It might sound ugly as all hell, just in isolation in solo mode, but when you have it in a track, in a full mix, it can really make things pop. Mixing with saturation is something that doesn't have to sound like you're slaughtering camels, right? But uh, <laughs> just a little bit, it can really make some, some percussive instruments really, really What pop. kind of sound does a slaughtered camel make? Well, imagine that. <laughs> that, that sounds like uh, two or three boss heavy metal distortion pedals in a row turn up to 19. I, I, that's what I imagine that uh-huh. sounds like. Well, one so, thing that kind of goes hand in hand in my mind with saturation yeah. is how the transients actually attack. For me, rather than just running something straight through distortion, if I want that thing to have a little bit more impact, I'm likely to be using something like SPL to like get a transient, the, designer. A transient designer in order to yeah. get the transient to hit a little bit harder. And then you use the saturation to kind of fill out the harmonic content of whatever it is that you're saturating. And along those lines, if you don't have something like SPL or some sort of transient designer, you can still do this 
with compression. You're just changing where your attack time is and the amount of volume you're going to throw through it so that your attack is coming through louder and then the compression comes in and kind of clamps down. It's almost as if an SPL or a transient designer is a specialized form of compression. Yeah. Well, we're playing with the initial attack there. So you mm -hmm. might have to experiment with having a little bit of a slower attack time right. to kind of get that. To and let the attack through. Yeah. Exactly. Before it starts clamping down really, really hard. And that is another, I think, common mistake, I hesitate to say, but, but a common error in judgment, perhaps, that, that people make when they're looking for impact. And we're we're talking about a lot how compressors can add punch and all these things. And while that is true, it is only true, in my opinion, if you're using it sort of correctly or rather appropriately. Not over compressing say. is what you're trying to say? What I'm trying, yeah. And then knowing why you're compressing something. So let's say we go back to that snare drum that ends up sounding like a cardboard box when we don't intend it to, mm -hmm. right? It can be that you're just hitting it too hard and you might not have enough release on it. The compressor, where, which is what, you're not hitting the snare too hard, you're hitting the compressor Yeah, too yeah, hard yeah, of course. Yeah, signal. you're hitting that. The, thank you, yes. Uh, we're hitting the compressor too hard and perhaps short attack time and short release time where it just ends up sounding like you're not getting that elongated snare hit, which is mm -hmm. a lot of times desirable. Right. It's knowing how to use a compressor and don't just assume that I'm just going to throw an L1 on everything and it's going to be punchy. Well, yeah, it is. It Come on, loud, that. dude, loud. <laughs> yeah. And then you end up with some, yeah, uh, album from the Loudness <laughs> Wars. That everything is just nice and even. Um, brick wall. So we baby. have to be right brick wall and make it loud and really fatiguing to listen to. One other thing while we're talking about compression here, though, and dynamics is that if we feel that we have to add more compression to bring up the life in whatever rhythmic instrument, let's say this is acoustic guitar or drums or what have you, but we end up squashing those transients too hard, a good thing to go to there is parallel compression, mm -hmm. right? when you can get that and kind of mix that in. So it's one of my that's favorite kinds of compression is to do it in parallel. Yeah. Yes. Do you do... Do you do most of your stuff in parallel at this point? Or do you do, let, let's say, for example, drums? 65, have, 35. 65 being parallel. parallel. Yeah. 65, 35 is probably the rough approximation of what I do in terms of compression. So if you have on a kit, do you rarely use anything on sort of like the insert on, let's say, for the kick? Or do you generally just leave those alone and then do it on the bus or just on the on the parallel? If I do it on an individual item, I'm going to use the quote-unquote mix knob. Okay. If I don't, I'm going to run it onto a bus that mixes in with the master bus of the drums since we're speaking drums. Yeah. If I put it on the master bus of the drums, I'm also going to use the mix knob of a compressor to dial back. So it's, it, essentially it's com parallel compression. Yeah. If I'm doing that. And granted, that's most of the time, especially with drums. It's it doesn't strike me well in the ear to compress things directly with drums. Other instruments I do the same sort of thing. Because usually all you're trying to do is add a little bit more weight rather than 
the dynamics of the performance. Now, if I'm dealing with the dynamics of the performance, that's a different story. But generally, I'm yeah. not working too often now with things that are overly dynamic on a performance anymore. So that's okay. Does that answer yeah. your question? Yeah. No, it's interesting just how we do that because I think I've experimented with parallel compression as well on the entire drum kit. I tend to do, I think, a little bit more gentle compression on the individual shells if they need it. Mm -hmm. And then I will add a little bit more again on the drum bus. And usually that gets me, you know, 90% there, if not 100% there, where I want to be. But if it's an energetic track, let's say it's a really high energy rock track or something, I might use a parallel bus just to get a little bit more of that crunch from like the, the parallel kit and just to mm -hmm. kind of spank the shit out of it, right? And then just kind of blend that in. So Yeah, but now you're talking parallel compression again and almost more like a Brower style compression. Kind of. Yeah, I'm thinking um, a little bit more like a – you know, Andrew Shep's type of stuff, how he likes to do a lot of his parallel stuff. Mm -hmm. So I, I wouldn't necessarily, when I think of Brower, I think a little bit more of frequency ranges where he might send kick and bass and, and low instruments to one bus and then different parts. But I'm talking right. about the entire kit to that. So, but that's another part for kind of creating punchy mixes. And then all we talked about here with drums and stuff, of course, goes on to any other instrument that might be a percussive thing, right? So let's say that if you have hits on, on guitars or whatever, all the volume automation, all this kind of stuff as well, but it's easy to get too heavy handed with the, with the compressors, I think. And mm -hmm. in my experience, it kind of gets the, the opposite result of what is, it, what is desirable. Yeah, so I think it's important to kind of pay attention to that where we're not overcooking stuff in the name of trying to get a punchy mix because... Although compression plays a part, it's not the only thing that's going to make it happen. And with that, let's move on to our Friday Finds. What have you got for us this week, Chris? I'm very excited this week because at this point I've had about a week to listen to the new Tears for Fears album, mm -hmm. Tipping Point, and a favorite of... Shit, could I call them pop bands? I guess pop acts. But I think they're just amazing songwriters, and uh, I love just about everything that they've done. But their new album is amazing. I really love it, from not just from the song standpoint, but the sound of it and everything. So if you're, even if you're not a pop fan, go check out Tears of Fears, The Tipping Point, and you'll thank me later. What about you, <laughs> what about you Jody? What do you got? I'm looking at the new release of Cubase 12. Oh, yeah. That has just been put into the world. They have three new levels of Cubase 12. They have a pro, they have an artist, and then they have an elements, and each one has a different price tag to it. One thing that they're doing that is similar to what Luna is doing is that you have to have a Cubase account in order to sign in. And I'm assuming that that's how they determine which level of Cubase you're going to be seeing when you log in. Because I would think that their system yeah, ha has everything in it. It's just what it's going to show you is based on your account level. So it's, it's coming into the subscription model almost. Yeah, because I think they're, they're getting rid of their – because they used to have a dongle 
for it. And I think they're doing away with that with this version. Yeah. I could be wrong, but I think so. Yeah. So that's cool. And I believe it's uh, also M1 native. Yeah. They right? have, well, it is. It's going to be compatible with all that. And the other thing that is coming to Cubase in a maintenance update is Dolby Atmos mixing. So they're planning on adding that as a built-in feature. And I'm going to assume, because I don't know, it's not actually announced, at, that will probably likely show up in the Pro version. That's cool. Yeah. So that's my pick right there. Awesome. So now we got both Logic and Cubase that natively do Atmos. That will be doing Dolby Atmos natively. Very cool. All right. While we've got your attention, we ask that you go to InsideTheRecordingStudio.com and sign up for our email list. Doing so gets you a little gift from Chris and I. Plus, you'll get weekly reminders about the Tuesday tips when they come out. And we'll make sure that you don't miss any future episodes of the podcast. If you send us an email at GoldStar, G-O-L-D-S-T-A-R, at InsideTheRecordingStudio.com with the word PUNCHY you'll get something cool back in your inbox. And if you have a topic of suggestion for Chris and I to explain in a future episode, contact us at the contact page and we'll put it into consideration for a future episode. And with that, I'll say, see you next week. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a good one, Jody.